instruction in the Lord's life in Philippians chapter 2. We've looked at the ultimate goal for which God redeems us, and that is his worship. At the end of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And this morning I want to take us back to John's gospel. Yes, fast forwarded from chapter 5 where we ended up a few weeks ago. But looking at John chapter 13 and what is the mark of a healthy church member but this, to be one who loves fervently. So let's look at John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31 this morning. It's a familiar text, no doubt, to most of you, but let me read it. Therefore, when he had gone out, meaning Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And will glorify him immediately. Little children. I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews. Now I also say to you. Where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Father, open our eyes. Show us great and wonderful and powerful truths from our Lord's life, from his work and from his commands this morning. And Father, where there is the presence of Self and selfishness in our own lives. May it be overcome by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where there is self-love, may it be transformed into God-directed love that spills out into love for one another. And may we love fervently from the heart. So fulfilling and living out your commands. And identifying us. Ourselves, not in word only, but by action as your disciples. No greater joy than to be named with you, Lord Jesus. To look like you. To love like you. And so, Father, work those things in us by the power of your Spirit, in whose hand your word rests, who will preach a far better sermon than any man could preach. And upon whom we are dependent in this hour where your word is open before us, work in us, we pray, for your glory. Amen. If the Lord Jesus, whom we all love, were to stand before us this morning physically again, just as he did before his disciples, and begin to speak to you, how seriously would you take those words? That's the question. How seriously would we listen? How, how intently would we focus were Jesus here physically speaking to us? Now, having said that, some of you with more vivid imaginations are probably already imagining in your mind what, what he might be saying. It's like that little meme that I've seen floating around, you know. 
Paul saw what's going on in America. In America, you're getting a letter. You might imagine Jesus would say something in a rebuking fashion. You might imagine Jesus saying something in a, an encouraging fashion. Still, others might imagine that Jesus would have some specific inside track of something that we were not doing that maybe we should be, and he would want us to understand that. But let me rephrase my initial question and reframe that for just a moment. Suppose that Jesus were to be here physically. Again, it's not going to happen, not until he returns to rule and to reign. But just suppose for a moment that he were. Or maybe suppose that you are back in this time in John chapter 13, just there in the upper room after Judas has just departed the room. And Jesus gives you a time indicator that I don't have long. In fact, I only have a minute to speak to you. And I'm going to to choose in that final moment with you that that most precious of time to address the mark of one who truly belongs to me. The mark of my own. The mark of that which should characterize my body. Who I will remind you of, church, we are this morning. What characterizes my body? Well, we've just read it and I gave it away, didn't I? Because we know what Jesus is saying. We don't have to imagine. We don't have to try to conjure up what what Jesus would say. In fact, it requires no imagination at all. All it requires is that you read the text of Scripture and believe it. This is what Jesus said. With time running out on the clock with an urgency in his soul, with the cross only hours away, Jesus speaks, and this is what he speaks. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, Love. By this, love. How touching our Lord's words are. You know, every now and again, it's good for us who sit here in this room to be reminded of what a bubble we all live in. You know, when I come home, I can't wait to get back to church. We were traveling last Sunday. And I found myself thinking, can we just, you know, go a little harder on the throttle? Skip Dallas? Go straight to Midland? And maybe make it to church? Because... For part of our time, a way we were reminded 
of just how radical what Jesus says is. The world is not a loving place. And sinners apart from Christ have no capacity for this kind of love. They don't know it. They've not experienced it. They're incapable of giving it. And when you've been loved by Christ in such extravagant fashion as all who believe in Him have, and when you are blessed to be in a church body, in a church family like us, you tend to forget what it could be like. And you tend to forget how great it is to be in the body of Christ, loved by Christ Himself, and loved by those in whom Christ dwells. What a joy, brothers and sisters, this morning to be loved by one another. What a joy and a privilege to be freed by Christ from sin and self so that we can love others. One thing that the world doesn't know but is pervasive, it it, it is the air they breathe, is that it is not only painful to not be loved by others, it is painful not to be able to love others. Christian, our natural instinct should be, I want to love somebody. I want to give myself to somebody. I I want to speak with somebody. I want to love them. I want to serve them. I want to encourage them. And that is absolutely missing from the world around us. And I'll tell you, it's painful to watch. Because it destroys you from the inside out. Jesus says, here's what's going to mark my disciples. Isn't it amazing? He is marching to his death. He has just finished the Lord's Supper. The the, the final Moments of his life have been activated. Judas is gone to get the murderers. Judas will soon bring them back. Jesus will soon go to Gethsemane. Jesus will soon meet with his father in John 17. One more time in a final prayer of victory. His death is looming large. And we might expect... That Jesus' final words to us would be some great militaristic conquest kind of a speech. Go out and give him what for, church? Go out and do this. And go out and build a kingdom. And go out and... And Jesus doesn't do any of it, does he? Imagine the tension of that room. Judas has just been unmasked as the great betrayer. I mean, first of all, they're trying to recover from the shock. And then Jesus comes with these words. Guys, let me boil it all down. 
The Roman cohort is coming. The, the Sanhedrin is coming. They're coming for me. I have only a few minutes. Love one another. As I love you. As people of truth, and we are truth people, aren't we? We love the truth. But we can become at times maybe so truth-oriented that we forget about Jesus' final command. To love one another. Love does not diminish truth. Love comes because of the truth. The truth sets you free to be able to love. But if you don't love, have you really heard the truth and been set free by it? And so as people of truth, it's good for us this morning to be reminded that the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ will produce more than any other this one marker. Loving one another. My prayer as your brother is that we would never, any of us, myself, not you, not anyone, would ever leave this. Grow past this. That we would live here as healthy, growing followers of Jesus. His love growing in us, our realization of it, and thus our love for one another growing. You know, so many times we've heard the command, haven't we? Love one another. Love one another. But you know, here's what I've realized. That command is often neutered and gutted because it lacks the foundation and the context that makes the command possible. It's not just saying, go love one another. That's not enough. You remember as a kid growing up, your parents inevitably told you, probably your mother because they spent more time with you, and Lord bless all of you mothers today on Mother's Day. And they would just be nice to your brother or sister. Love your brother or sister. Why? Because I said so. Now how long did that actually work? Not very long, did it? Why? You, you maybe lack some context there. A foundation of why you should love your brother or your sister. Love is not something that comes merely because we're told to do it. You cannot. You do realize this, don't you, brothers and sisters? I can't sit up here this morning as your under-shepherd for Christ and say to you, you've got to love one another and, and you will just because I say it. That's not possible. We can't love one another because we create a culture of syrupy emotionalism where oh we're just we're we're the loving church you know we we just love each other and oh we come and we put on the the smiley faces and we act out love that's not love either we can't love because you know some of us let's be honest are just personality wise more lovable and loving than others Not that we don't, but it may appear that way. Those those things don't create love. What creates love, as Jesus commands it here, is a changed heart. 
the gospel so penetrating and transforming the heart that it should almost go without saying that we love one another. The command occurs first with Jesus. When Judas is gone, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. That's a lot of glorifying. But I want you to understand what that glorifying is all about. So go to John chapter 17. And if anything else results from our study in John's gospel over the coming years, I would hope it would be that you would have John 17 memorized. Because we go back to it so often. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to his father said, The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh and that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world does. And again, let me say, that's a whole lot of glorifying. So that what we find in John chapter 13 is a precursor and an introduction to all that Jesus will say to his own Father in John 17. And what causes Jesus to speak of this great glorification, this great cause of celebration where the Father glorifies the Son. And the Son brings glory to the Father. And both are dwelling in that eternal glory which they had before the foundation of the world is this. That God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the foundation of all that Jesus is saying in verses 31 and 32. This is the basis of God glorifying The Son and the Son glorifying the Father and both dwelling together in unspeakable glory because the Son has come and given His life as the ransom payment for sinners. This is the impetus. This is the power to love, brothers and sisters. The work of Christ that changes sinners. Larry Read it for us a moment ago. If any man is in Jesus Christ, he is a new creature. Not remanufactured. Not retooled. New. Behold, all things, all things are what? Passed away and all things have become what? New. That means a new heart. A new heart that then would be capable of even, number one, hearing the command and then carrying out that command. 
to grasp the density of what Jesus is building here. Now the Son of Man is glorified and God glorified in Him. The Father glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself. He will accept the Son's work. He will will validate what the Son has done and will glorify Him immediately because of His love. Even the cross is glory. Even the heinous instrument of death and hate on that hill becomes a place of glory for the Son immediately. Because Christ has so loved, and it is that glory that we are called to shine forth and to reflect as we, because of Christ changing us and redeeming us from sin, now we have the capacity to love one another. It's not a sterile command. Love your brothers and sisters. It's a legitimate command. I have shown and demonstrated the greatest ability to love. And now because of me in you and my transforming work of a new heart in you, you love as well. That's the centrality of the gospel. That is the foundation that Jesus is building here. It is the the, the very core of his own identity as he talks to the Father in John 17. This is where love is rooted. This is where love is found. And brothers and sisters, if we're healthy, We'll know it when we love. From a sincere heart, from a pure heart, with a fervent heart. We'll know that we're healthy. We can't draw spiritual blood and send it off to a lab somewhere and say, diagnose my health. I got news for you. You can't even diagnose it by how many times you show up to church in a given month. But you can diagnose it by your love for one another. And that love is a natural outpouring and outflowing of a new heart that is shaped around Christ and Christ's love and Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And here he's speaking of that somewhat veiled. They don't understand what's coming. He can't speak of it openly and fully yet. They're they're, they're like me. They're dense. They're not going to get it. But he speaks in terms of its glory. And I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 33. Jesus not only loves in redemption, Jesus loves in the relationships that he has cultivated with these men. I want you to notice the endearing terms that Jesus uses. In verse 33, he says, little children. John is actually fond of this term. It's the only place he uses it here in this gospel. But in his letters that come at the end of the New Testament, this word is all over. And there are two ways John could communicate that you were a small child. There's the small child that is, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old. That's a a little child. But this is not that term. This is... The baby. 
This is those cute little babies that are popping out all over our church right now. And they're precious. And they're loved. But they're also very needy, aren't they? And in that fatherly, tender affection, that moves you to tears the first time you hold that baby, that just a, brings a joy, you, you just, oh, goodness gracious, it's hard to even quantify it with words what it feels like. He said, my little children, my, my young, needy, dependent, precious child, I'm only here with you a little longer. That's my question in the beginning. What would you listen? How would you listen if Jesus were here and he says, I've only got a minute? It's what he's saying. You're this impressionable, still formative child, still needy, still growing child, and he's holding you. He says, I've got to go. They're coming for me. So hear what I say. I need to prepare you for something. From Peter to the present, Jesus still speaks, my children. I need to prepare you for what's coming. They're they're coming for me. I won't be here anymore. You won't see me anymore. I'm going to do the work that makes all of what I'm about to say possible. And here is what I want you to know. Love one another as I loved you. I'm giving you instructions before I leave. Love one another. And and, and as parents, we know what that is like. Or as a child, you know what that's like. Mom and dad are going to go out on a date night. They hire a sitter. The sitter comes over. They're about to walk out the door. It's usually dad having to drag mom out the door because mom has a harder time leaving her babies, right? And as they're on the way out the door, mom and dad, what are you doing? You're instructing your children, aren't you? Be nice to the babysitter. Be kind to your brother. Be kind to your sister. I've got to leave. And I've got to say this quick. Don't forget. Love your siblings. Now children, love one another. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says... In verse 34, you can't come with me, so I'm going to leave something with you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. D.A. Carson says this, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, yet profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it. And put it to practice in their lives. Love one another. And for all of us here this morning. We hang our heads a bit don't we? Because I can promise you in the past week there were times when I did not love as I should have. I didn't love like Jesus loved. 
I didn't reflect a changed heart as I should have, nor did you, by the way. Because of our fallenness, because we still wrestle, and that's what Carson means. It's simple enough for a toddler to memorize and understand and appreciate it, yet it is profound enough that the most mature believer is repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly we carry it out. Did you hear Jesus? A new command I give to you that you love one another. Let me ask you a very simple question. Maybe it distills down to this. How have you been loved by Jesus Christ? How have you been loved? What what, what sins have been covered by Him? The sins of your past, all of them. Well, I'm not that bad. Then you don't know what love is yet. How have you been loved by Christ? What has Christ covered for you? What has He chosen because of His blood that was shed covering you? What has He chosen never to remember about you again? What has He said? I'm not bringing that up. That's covered. You'll never see it again. You'll never answer for it again. It is covered. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sin, because of the love of Christ, has been removed. How have you been loved? What has been forgiven in you? Now let's turn that a different direction. How might we take those same powerful understandings of what Christ has done for us and begin to apply that to others? How can we love? How can we forgive each other? How can we be long-suffering with each other? You don't know what they did to me. I may not, but I do know what you did to Christ. You put Him on a cross. And what they did, you're telling me, is greater than you doing that? And yet that is forgiven? can you not forgive that cross word? That slight on your character. That theft from you. That incursion upon what you wanted. How can we not forgive? Because that's, after all, part of love, isn't it? And, and here's the thing that's not new. It We've been told before to love one another. That goes all the way back to Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. That's not new. That's always been there. What is new is the qualification of loving. Love as I have loved you. You see, the law couldn't provide a standard for love. Only Christ can do that. The law is good. The law is holy, Paul says. But it can't do everything. It cannot save. 
And it cannot even give you the example you need of what it is that you should love like. And here is Jesus saying, love like I have loved you with the power of changed hearts. Oh, church family, to love like this is the ultimate joy. Because we know what it is to be loved in that way. Such a command is not a burden for us, but it is a blessed reminder of all that is ours in Christ to the point that it just begins to spill over. It's the DNA of Christ's love in our DNA and it just starts coming out. How many of you have ever done something in your life and somebody said to you, you are your father or you are your mother? All of us, right? How glorious it would be for us as Christians, to leave here going into a world that has not been loved and has no capacity to love with hearts filled because having gathered together as one body in Christ, reflecting our Savior, say, man, I was loved like Christ. By brother so and so and sister so and so and brother so and so today. I know Christ because of them. Because they, by transformed heart, love by this new commandment. Loving as Christ has loved. What a joy it is. What an unspeakable comfort to be loved by our Lord, to be loved by those who love our Lord, and to reflect that. This, by this, will all men know that you're my disciples. My DNA rolls out of you as much as a child does without even knowing it, reflects their parents. The way their voice sounds, their mannerisms, their looks, whatever it may be. Let the DNA of Christ so cultivate us. People look at us. And yes, by the way, brothers and sisters, it's not here, but let me just go ahead and say it. The world's not always going to like that. They're going to see Jesus in you, even the love of Jesus in you, and some of them are going to hate it. And they're going to hate you because they hated him. Don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. That's part of the deal. Are you greater than your master? No. Do you love like your master? Yes. Then you'll be hated for it. Great opportunity to show more love. But it starts here. Notice the qualification. It's not only that you've loved as I've loved, it's that you love one another. This is an, starts as an in-house proposition. We've heard a lot over the past couple of years about love your neighbor, love your neighbor, and love your neighbor. That's not possible if you don't know how to love your family first. That's where love is cultivated and grown. And then it spills out to your neighbor. church culture where love is present 
will only be present because the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of Christ in us has first taken root and effect. So much beauty, so much power. Would you do me the favor of going now to Romans chapter 5? A glorious text of Scripture. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith. What a breath of fresh air that is. Justified by faith. Not by your works, but by faith like Abraham was. We have peace with God. Through Jesus Christ. You know when most. Conflict happens at home. When people are under stress right. You've had a bad day at work and. You're afraid of losing your job and the finances are tied and things and you come home and somebody says something. A little edgy, maybe they've had a bad day too and they're under stress at home and then boom, powder keg. No peace, high probability of other things going sideways. But look at this, having been justified by faith, we have peace. No conflict. Absolute absence. Of conflict. We have peace with God. Brothers and sisters. There's there's no tension anymore. Yeah you're at peace with God. If you're in Christ. God is no longer angry with you. God is pleased with you. As he is pleased with his son. You're at peace with the God of the universe. What else do you need? God and you have been reconciled through our Lord Jesus Christ. End of verse 2. We exult in hope. And what is the hope based in? The glory of God. What's the glory of God based in? Jesus' redemptive work to save sinners. He goes on in verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult, we rejoice in our tribulations. That's weird. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Okay, so maybe there is a purpose. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Why? Look at the next phrase. Because what? The love of God. Has been poured. Little bit. Little drop. Top off the cup. No. It has been poured out. God holds nothing back. Within our hearts. Through the spirit given to us. For while we were still helpless. At the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man. Some would even dare to die. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. But God 
You're not great. You're not good. But God demonstrates his love toward us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. That's the kind of love that transforms the human heart. Know what you were. Know what Christ has done for you. And Jesus says, when you know that, you can love as I have loved you. As a pastor and a shepherd, one always hopes to know and understand where the church is spiritually. How's people's hearts? What's driving people? What are their affections? What are, where are they struggling? Where are they hurting? And you seek to feed and to build and to strengthen so that the church remains healthy. So that at times of tragedy and times of crisis and times of strain, there will be a right response. We often experience this on a non-church level. A great tragedy occurs somewhere in the world. A tsunami, an earthquake, a war, whatever the case may be. And and there's something in us and the ads on our televisions tell us, don't just sit there, do something about it, right? Get out your credit card. Get on a plane. Do something. But what of the love of Christ? What of the crisis of Calvary? What of, what of, the, what of the, the, the crisis of the perfect God-man hanging between earth and heaven, punished for sins? He did not commit to demonstrate this is what the love of God looks like. When we see that, why don't we want to do something about it? We do it with earthquakes. We do it with tornadoes. We do it with tsunamis. We do it with all kinds of crises. But what of the crisis of the love of God shown at the cross? And that is what Jesus is saying. Look, when you've experienced what you're going to experience, I'm going away. You can't come with me. You can't participate in what I've got to do. But once you see the crisis moment where God pours out His wrath on me for your sins, do something about it. What's the do something? Love one another. What does that look like? Well, Paul gives us a pretty good catalog, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 13. At first I was tempted to go straight to 1 Corinthians 13, but you can't get to 1 Corinthians 13 without going to John 13. Because that's your basis. The command is grounded in something. It's built on something. It's got the right footers and the right concrete strength and the right steel in place. So that the edifice can go up. And so Paul says, 
When you love like Christ, here's what it looks like. It's patient. So, brothers and sisters, this is real for us, okay? So let's diagnose our health. Are we patient? Patient when wronged? Patient when neglected? Patient when it doesn't go our way? Paul says love is patient. Love is kind. Kindness. Kindness. I see the world all around me. Church, just be kind. And I want to say, well, amen to that. How do you do that? Only by knowing the love of Christ. It changes a heart to be able to do that. Love is without jealousy. Man, somebody else got what I wanted. That's okay. Rejoice for them. It's not braggadocious. It's not, hey, everybody, look at me. Listen to me. It's not arrogant. it's, it's, It's not full of itself. Isn't it amazing how often in our Lord's ministry here on earth, He simply went about His day, passing through the crowd such that people didn't even notice Him. Some did. But but He's not there for self-glory and self-promotion. That was up to the Father to glorify the Son. The Son's not trying to glorify Himself. And even in that, we have a, a lesson of love. He's not arrogant. He, it acts becomingly. Love has a decorum about it. And we ought to be that way with one another. We act becomingly. We act in an appropriate manner, consistent with, equal to our changed hearts. And we, 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 we might categorize this in our day as civility. You notice how uncivilized people are now? Oh, I'm telling you, just, again, get outside your little bubble. Go see people you don't normally see and rub elbows with. That makes you want to staycation, not vacation. Because you see things you wish you hadn't seen. Rude. Not civil. That's not even to mention the cesspool that is social media. Or texting. People will say the craziest things when they hide behind a keyboard. But if we had to sit down with one another with a Christian brother or sister face to face, let us act becomingly, kindly. Though there be disagreements, we can act out of love in a consistent manner with our Lord's own deportment. It's not self-seeking. It's not trying to promote itself. It's not trying to Better itself. It's trying to better others. It's not easily provoked. It's not easily offended. It is not easily angered. One thing that marriage does for you very quickly is show you how sinful you are. I'm not joking, dead serious. I I realize I'm a pretty selfish person when Nicole and I got married. Somebody crosses you doesn't say what you like, the way you want it said or done or whatever. We're all that way. We, we get easily provoked, easily offended, easily angered when it doesn't go our way. That doesn't go away at age three. It only gets worse if the gospel doesn't give us a new heart. Love does not hold grudges. Love does not rejoice in unrighteous things. Oh, boy. 
We don't rejoice in things that Jesus died to forgive. We do, however, rejoice in what is true. We do rejoice in patience that suffers all things for the love of God and the love of others. We, we believe the best about one another. Because we love each other, we believe the best. We don't view one another with eyes of suspicion. We, we believe the best. Does that mean there's not problems that arise? No, absolutely not. But we don't go in looking for the problems. We look for the best. We hope in everything because we have ultimately hope in Christ and that eternal love of Him for us and that love then of Him through us. We hope in all things. We endure and we never fail because love never fails. Brothers and sisters, the mark of a healthy believer is that they imitate their master and were known by the love that he loved with. One final thought, and I want to invite you to a separate portion of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We find ourselves dwelling amongst a group of believers who are in dire straits. They are under persecution. They have been dispersed from their homes. They are dwelling in a foreign land where they are surrounded by paganism and immorality and they are being stretched and tested on every side. There is temptation to join in the sinful life of the culture around them. There is the temptation to believe the prosperity gospel that says whatever your flesh wants to lust after and consume, God's going to give it to you. There are prosperity preachers all over 2 Peter. They are being literally attacked from every side. This is a dire situation. If it were worldly, and by human standards and conventions, we would send in the military. It's that bad. It is a spiritual battle. And in the middle of a spiritual battle, listen to the Apostle Peter's encouragement and exhortation to this church. And you might think he would say, you know, build a bunker, crawl inside of it, come out when Jesus comes. That's not what he says. First Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose. What? What purpose, Peter? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He leaves you this example. 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Okay, great, Peter. But what is it all for? That's the crisis. Now, what do I do about it? Go to chapter 4 and verse 8. Peter has given them a litany of things that they need to make sure are in place. But then he gets to verse 8 and he says this. Two words tell you the seriousness of this. Above all. Above all. More important than anything else. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Huh? We're under persecution, Peter. The spiritual cannon shells are coming in left and right. And you say the thing we're supposed to do is keep fervent in your love for one another. You better believe it. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Tough times are coming. It's going to put pressure from within and from without. Somebody might snap and speak crossly to you. Somebody in the fog of war may make a decision that you disagree with. And yes, it might even be sinful. All manner of things may go sideways. Do you know how you remedy them all? fervently love one another. Not passively, fervently. To persevere, the word means. Not to waver in one's display of interest or devotion. You are eager and earnest to love them. Peter says, when it all hits the fan, love one another fervently because love will cover a multitude of sins. All this around us is going to be gone someday, including these bodies. What matters is the eternal matters of the heart of sins forgiven. Therefore, love one another because love will cover a multitude of sins. So when the pressures of life mount, when the frustrations mount, love one another. Fervently. Not haphazardly, half-heartedly, fervently. Because love covers a multitude of sins. It's my firm conviction that there is nothing that a Christian, because of Christ's love in us, cannot forgive why would you say that Brian because there is no sin which Christ cannot forgive and if Christ's love can forgive any sin 
we are commanded to imitate his love, not our love. There's literally nothing we can't forgive if we are in Christ because of love. I think one of the most powerful examples I ever saw of this, John was at your mom's funeral. Made a video about some tremendous trials and sufferings and wrongs that had been done to her. And she said said in the video, but I forgive them. Why is that possible for any Christian? Because of the love of Christ in us. We can love one another fervently from a pure heart. Forgiving sin. Because we have been forgiven great sin. What a great epitaph someday when we're gone. That our children and our church family would engrave on that stone. Disciple of Jesus. Because he or she loved. Like the master. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. By this will you reflect a healthy Christian life. That you love as I loved you.